So we're going to look now at um, lesson number 20, I guess, technically, um, which means we're getting, we're getting close to halfway there. Um, my establishing an adequate anthropology, but focusing particularly on the Amago Day. The book of Genesis tells us that man created an image of the likeness of God. Genesis 1 to 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. This verse and the entire Genesis account of the creation of man and woman is the cornerstone of Christian anthropology. That's what we saw already. It was generally philosophical anthropology. The fundamental reason for his dignity is that he is created in the image and likeness of God. Catechism number 355 to 379. And so in the Fathers of the Church, there's often a distinction made between image and likeness. We're not going to get into that, but the image is almost ontological. This is, you're creating his image, and the likeness is more moral. As you grow in being transformed by grace in your moral life, you are brought into the likeness. You become the likeness of God. So... Uh, but in a moment to reflect on this idea of image or of imago, to be an image of something or someone is to reflect or in some way reproduce the prototype. That is the thing being imaged. So if I, on this board, let's see if I can do a good job of this. Draw an apple. Whatever, it's like an apple, kind of. Anyhow, if I draw an apple, well, and, and you've never seen a real apple before, and assuming that the picture is decent, how are you going to tell what that is? You have to have experienced a real apple to know what that is, or I have to explain to you what it is. The, the image only makes sense in reference to the prototype. If I show you a picture of a dog, you've got to know what a dog is, Dog, dogginess, the nature of dog to do that. So the same with man. If we're created the image likes of God and we don't believe in God, this is so crucial. You don't believe in God, then you're never going to know who you are. You're never going to have an adequate anthropology from a Christian perspective. Without God, man makes no sense. Even with God, man often doesn't make any sense. So man being created in the image of God means that his being and his actions reflect or are a sign of, a sacrament of, God as creator. Notice it's the entire person who is the image of God. Body and soul, not just the soul. The body is integral to the image. Because without the physical body, that there can be no, no image. So the body is the sacrament of the person. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into that. I, I think that I wouldn't say just that that primarily the soul or the rational function of the soul is the image and likeness of God. However, 
there are other arguments throughout the history of the church of where man is in the image and likeness of God. But as we move towards more contemporary anthropology, we're going to see that the body plays a very important part in the image. As we get away from Jansenism, away from Manichaeism, and that relation and gift becomes really central. I, I, I don't. Who who was it that gave the lecture? Don't remember what I'm talking about. Is that Doctor Long? Doctor Stephen Long. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Well, if we get a copy of the lecture, I can't comment on this now. Yeah, but I can't comment on it. But I'll I'll we'll look into that. So. So what are what are the the qualities of the image of God? And of course, throughout history, there have been different ways to reflect or understand or, or apprehend it. Uh, the first we're going to say is man's relation and love to his creator. This is the, 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 the foundational, it's not just somebody's aspect of it, but it's foundational. John Paul II says, the first and foremost important communion man is open to is the communion that flows from his relation to God. In this fundamental relation, we observe that the image of God is manifested above all in the relation of the human eye to the divine you. Man knows God, and his heart and will is capable of uniting himself to God. As a result, Christian thought is perceived, and man's likeness to God, the foundation of man's call to participate in the interior life of God, his opening to the supernatural. That's the, the Kapak Zay. This is foundational, the relation of the image to the prototype. So that that's, you know... We have to see that. Without that fundamental relationship, you're not going to understand the image of God. But man is more than just in relationship to God. He must be seen in relationship with God. You'll see the distinction there? I can be in relationship to God, but I'm not in relationship with him. His dignity flows from this relationship. Gaudium et Spes 19. The dignity of man rests above all on the fact that he is called to communion with God. This invitation to converse with God is addressed to man as soon as he comes into being. For if man exists, it is because God has created him through love, and through love continues to hold him in existence. He cannot live fully according to the truth unless he freely acknowledges that love and entrusts himself to his creator. So th this goes back to this whole concept of love and gift, that if our being is gift, that God created us not out of duty, the only way he created us is out of love. The only reason he reveals himself to us is out of love. There's no compulsion for that. And, and, and as Josh did say, and throughout the history of the church, there has been a lot written on the image of God in the soul particularly, as we'll see, in the higher rational functions. 
Not that the body has been looked down upon, but the soul has been focused on as the major part of the Imago Dei since it is spiritual and it is immortal. God is spiritual and immortal. Of course, we said that the, 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 the spiritual faculties of the soul, the intellect and the will, these are qualities that exist in God and man, and so they are those highest parts of the soul and the highest parts of the Imago Dei. But we can also see the image of God in man's dominion over creation. If you read Communion Stewardship, number 56 to 61, God, after creating the male and female, God blesses them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and over every living thing. The Creator entrusts dominion over the earth to all mankind, and this dominion is a reflection of the lordship and dominion of the Lord and flows from the institution and fruitfulness of the union of man and woman in marriage. And so part of this image of God is due to his ability to have dominion over creation. But that dominion has to come from the Lord. John Paul II. Man is in the image of God partly through the mandate received from his creator to subdue, to dominate the earth. In carrying out this mandate, man, every human being, reflects the very action of the creator of the universe. So as we're fruitful, we dominate. We, 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 we create this just society. We try to have our world reflected, or God reflected in the world. And Gaudium et Spes 34 just sort of further reiterates uh, this point. Um, but it's not just domination. We're, we're not here just to dominate creation, as we're going to see in bioethics. This is not a good thing. It's to order the world to God as it has come from God. We could also say next that the image of God is in man's freedom. God is free and man is free too. Our freedom participates and comes from God. So for von Balthasar and his theodrama, one of the, the big sort of essential elements is our finite freedom cooperating with God, who is infinite freedom. And we are free beings. We're not completely determined, and we cooperate. That theodrama is the interplay between these two freedoms. Gadim Spes 17 shows that our proper use of freedom is in, integral to the dignity of the human person. So if we don't have free, if we're not free, what are we? We're robots. We're controlled. There's really no dignity. Part of our image, part of our dignity is rooted in our ability to make free choices. We're going to see a lot more of that later. But what we want to focus on here, because it is sort of so integral to the teaching of John Paul II, and and an adequate anthropology that, that takes into consideration the teaching of the Second Vatican Council and a lot of the development of thought over the course of the past century is that image of God or the Imago Dei in communion, in the communio personarum, in the communion of persons. So we've already seen how relation is fundamental to our idea of person. Persons are called not just to be the individual substance of rational nature, 
the call to exist in relation to and with other persons. And, you know, this is so crucial to, to John Paul II and his thought. Potentially, I mean, maybe he saw the rise of this radical individualism uh, and the importance of, of relation to developing as, as an individual. So returning to the inspired text of Genesis, we see that just before God creates man in his image, he pauses to reflect on what he's about to create. And he says, and this is Genesis 1 to 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Again, I'm sure that your Old Testament scholars will tell you all kinds of stuff about it. But basically, John Paul II will say that the use of the plural in God's self-reference, which is important here, for although God does not explicitly reveal himself as the trinity of persons of the Old Testament, this, this, this revelation only comes with Christ, we see in these words a very early hint or a foreshadowing of the divine meaning. John Paul notes here that before the creation of man, it is as if God goes into himself, into the very mystery of his divine being as this divine we, in order to find a pattern of communion for the creation of man and woman in his image. And so just as our being, just as our goodness, find a relationship in God and to God, so does our communion. But this passage is significant because it introduces to us the notion of the communal dimension present in man by means of his being created in the image of God, who is a community of persons. And y'all, this is so central to moral theology because morality talks about our exercise of freedom uh, in relation to God and others, other persons. Therefore, arising from the very mystery of his being as communion, we see that man is not only the Imago Dei because he is a rational and free substance, but because of his ability to live in communion with other persons and image the communion eternally present in God. So again, you know, in any, any sense that, that we exist in relation with persons, angelic persons, human persons, divine persons, reflect the image present in God. Well, before sin, yes, we create the image of the God, but the image doesn't isn't doesn't taken away. After sin, we still keep the image, just like we keep our goodness. It may be distorted, as we'll see, because of the fall, the inability to give of ourselves freely. The image is distorted, but it's not it's not destroyed. So John Paul II, and and and, and some of his he talks about this in Muliation, he talks him and in theology of the body that man becomes the image of God not so much in the moment of solitude as in the moment of communion. So if you look, we're going to look at that more next, that idea of original solitude or in our next semester. Yeah, man is an image of God there. He is. But he is primarily the image in the moment of communion. Because it as as if we go to Genesis 2, so this passage is from Genesis 1. This is from the priestly source. The one that talks about the whole 
Adam and Eve in the garden. That's the second one, the earlier Yahweh source. But here's man. He is has dominion over creation as an individual person who is naming the animals. He's exerting his imago dei. It's there. But it only comes to try to sort of fullness when he encounters the woman. And in their gift of self, it, uh, it blossoms into uh, new life. So if man's image is fulfilled in this Trinitarian dimension of the communion of persons, then what becomes the basis of it? So you, here you have, let's say, man, imago Dei, communion of persons. What becomes the basis of that, that communio personarum? What does? Do you guess? Trey, do you want to guess? Okay, you're close. You're close. It's it's gift of self in love. Of course, love is there, but it's gift. We've already seen it. Man is created for gift of self. God even says, and speaking of the image and likeness of God in man, states that this is number 24. This likeness reveals that man, who is the only creature on earth which God will for himself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of self. We're created for gift. We're created for a lot. Well, gift itself in love, not just bodily gift, as we're going to see, but total gift of self. John Paul II reiterates his position in Mulieris in Utatum when he states, "To say that man is created the image and likeness of God means that man is called to exist for others, to become a gift. This is because of the gift of Father, Son, and Spirit that exists in." The Trinity. God's design for us is to be one brotherhood in love. Love of neighbor, love of enemies, and love between man and woman. We're going to see more of this later. And of course, there are various types of communion human persons can enter into where man images God. It's, it's not just the sexual we're going to see that. For John Paul II, it's not just a sexual. It's any type of communion. Marriage, family, society, church. Because gift is more than purely genital. And we're going to... One second. Which is something that we, we forget about. I gave... I went to Lafayette uh, to give a talk on Thursday to young adults. And that was, they wanted me to talk on theology of the body and how it's applicable to these young adults, most of them who are single. And I said, so yeah, when we talk about theology of the body, most people are thinking about, okay, we're talking about sex. No, we're not. Theology of the body is primarily not about sex. If you're looking to, like, get some sort of a textbook in sexuality, you're going to be sorely mistaken, bored, and confused. You might be bored and confused even if you're not looking for it as a textbook of sexuality. Because what is theology of the body about? It's primarily about anthropology. He says at the beginning, he's there to establish an adequate anthropology. So this idea of gift, and we're going to, oh, we're going to see it next year, does mean the body. The body expresses that interior person. So we're not just saying I'm giving my 
I'm giving myself to you in my body, but I'm giving myself to you. I'm not just giving my body to you. I'm not just giving my biological material to you. And so this gift of self, as we'll talk about when we talk about the sacrament, the man and woman give themselves in the body, which reflects that interior dimension. The body is the sacrament of the person. And so, yes, primarily we will say it has a genital expression. That's what we normally think of when we talk about, I'm going to get married and live the theology of the body. Okay, (laughs) great. But there is the non-genital. And so we can say that priests and nuns are called to live the spousal meaning of the body um, in a non-genital way. Children are, adults are, old people are, we all are. And, and what I sort of proposed in my talk, and, and this is kind of a little bit of an aside, but we have time, is that so often I find young people, and again, this is from my work, sort of dissatisfied in the present moment because in their mind, somehow, they'll only find true fulfillment, and we can sort of equate love with gift, is when they're able to be married or when they become priests or nuns. I'll be able to fully live out the gift of self then. No, not at all. You're called to live gift of self right now in a non-general way, but you're called to live your gift of self every day in loving your neighbor and loving your friends, of giving of yourself. So the, 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 the... the completion of our ontological call to gift is not at some later date. You'll express it in a general way in a later date, or you'll take vows or promises and give yourself as a priest. But we're called the gift of self right here and now in all that we do, and that commandment to love. And we talked about love is about the gift of self already. But the other thing that we'll talk about a little bit more when we get to sexual ethics that John Paul II doesn't reflect upon that much. He does talk about it, but what is the phrase, the concept that goes along with gift? What is the the opposite of it? Receptivity. I'm going to give myself, or I'm going to give a gift, I have to have someone who can receive it. And as we talked about, much more difficult to receive than to give. Much more difficult. And so, so just as the father gives himself to the son, the son receives that gift. He receives his own existence in a certain sense, so we can get into a lot of this Trinitarian stuff. But there can be a theology of gift, and I think there can be a theology of receptivity, even though it's not something that John Paul II fully develops. It's developed a lot by Balthazar, um, and they can, there's some critiques of that, which we're not going to get into now. But receptivity is important, the concept of receptivity. Um, and, and this is something that, as we kind of move to the, the, the next passage, uh, we are called a gift as there is gift in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, giving themselves in love and receiving in all eternity, we're called as human persons to do that amongst ourselves. And so when I was in theology, uh, there was a lot of talk of developing 
a Trinitarian ontology. Have you all talked about that? So being ontology in view of the Trinity. Envisioning man and woman in the light of the gift of self and love among the persons of the Trinity presents us with a Trinitarian ontology. Not just, it's, it's our, our being. Our Trinitarian ontology challenges us to see the person created for communion as the image of God, not just ontologically um, constituted as a static being, but more dynamically as being is gift or being is love. Not just that individual substance, but we're created for gift, we're created for love. It's a part of our being, even in a certain sense, apart from grace. And being created in God's image and likeness, our deepest ontology is founded on our ability and need to give, to live as gift for another, thus to image and participate in the total gift of love present among the persons of the Trinity. And so there are different theologians who uh, are, are, are big into that. Uh, what's the other one that I didn't put on here? I can't remember his name. But the fancy word for this, if you really want a fancy word, maybe y'all have heard this. that ontodontology being gift study the ontodontology so there's a lot of uh what's the guy okay i'm gonna try to remember his name uh being as gift he had friedrich and the communio has written a number of, of things about this and had a number of different journals a few years back uh, but you'd have to to go and do some reading on that. The, the thing that I, I want to sort of also talk a little bit about is sexual difference in the image of God. So John Paul II, in focusing so much on communion in his image of God, advanced the ball forward. If you're going to look at genuine insights or new things in theology of the God, body based in tradition it's really going to be this idea of the image of God as communion and particularly sexual difference entering into that I never really had magisterial teaching on this the passage in scripture that speaks of the image in of communion also implies that sexual difference being male and female is a constitutive part of the image of God Mulder's Tata number seven, the fact that man created as man and woman is the image of God means not only that each of them individually is like God as a rational and free being, it also means that man and woman created as the unity of the two in their common humanity are called to live in a community of love. And in this way, to mirror in the world the communion of love that is in God, through which the three persons love each other and the intimate mystery of one divine life. So we're going to look at that a lot more later. So that, that communion is in the common humanity, the shared human nature, but it also integrates the difference between male and female. And somehow we can say that, that this sexual difference is part of the image of God. And there's been a fair amount written on it in the past 30 or 40 years. You know, man gives himself... The woman, the woman receives the gift, and the child comes forth in imaging the Trinity. There is a major dissimilitude. There is no sexuality in the Trinity. All right? But 
this is something that John Paul II has given to us. So this fruitfulness, our procreative ability, is part of the image of God, but we're going to look at that a lot more when we talk about sexual ethics. So, so far, we've really kind of looked at the, the dignity of the human person and established an anthropology according to philosophical construct, according to this concept of the Imago Dei, particularly man created in relation, in love, in gift, in communion. But there's another perspective that we have to be able to see man and woman in relationship to get a full understanding of anthropology. And to a great degree, we've already done this, is to see man and woman in the perspective of redemption. And this is going to be that, that little reading thing from Communion and Stewardship 44 to 51. In a certain sense, we look at theology of the body, or everything we've talked about, as was brought up a few moments ago, We've seen man in the prelapsarian state before the fall, what man would have been like before sin entered the world. Uh, but we believe, of course, that original sin entered the world. Our original parents somehow disobeyed God. And of course, I'm not going to get into it now, but we're not, we're not talking literally. We're not reading this literally. The, the text there's how where how original sin came into being we don't really fully know but there would have had to have been original moral choice that did not go in accord with conscience or god's law but that's not for us to discuss here you can talk to dr bagelow about that he's right across the street but the action and consequences for all of us we removal of sanctifying grace the intellect and the will is clouded Concupiscence in general leaves us open to suffering and death and locks man out of heaven. But it also distorts the image of God. As we'll see, that gift becomes very difficult because we hide ourselves because of shame. And so it's distorted. We don't fully, in John Paul II's thought, understand what our body is meant for, what the other person's body is meant for. But regardless of how you want to understand or explain where this came from, you can't deny that something's wrong, that the human person is falling and we're in need of redemption to be redeemed from our, from, from our, from the sin, from sin in general, but our own sins. We need redemption because we can't, we can't do it ourselves. So this is where Christ enters in. And we've seen this already. God becomes man in order to die for us in order to redeem us. This is the whole Paschal mystery. We receive new life in Christ through baptism that restores us to grace and heightens our dignity, making us adopted sons of God the Father and giving us life in the Spirit. So it's only in Christ, as we've talked about earlier, that man truly comes to understand who he is. And, and we've looked at this a lot. Gaudium et Spes 22. You can be, be assured that there will be a question about God in his past 22 on our, our exam. The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to man himself and makes the supreme calling clear. 
He who is the image of the invisible God is himself the perfect man. The sons of Adam, he restores the divine likeness, which had been disfigured from the first and onward. Since human nature, as he assumed, it was not annulled, nor was the image of God, by the very fact it has been raised up to a divine dignity in our respect too. For by his incarnation, the Son of Man has united himself in some fashion with every man. So because he shares in our one human nature, he's united himself to us. And through baptism, there's a deeper unity where we actually become sons and daughters of God. So the Christian man conformed to the likeness of the Son, who is the firstborn of many brothers, received the first fruits of the Spirit, by which he now becomes capable of discharging the new law of love. So we're, we're supposed to live out our life in Christ and grow into that image. Because Christ is the image of God. He's the true Imago Dei. When you see who you have seen me, has seen the Father. This is our ultimate vocation, to be conformed to Christ. <clears throat> so we've seen the image of God, man before the fall, then redeemed man. But there is a third historical element to this redemption, and the image of God. And Thomas, the, the Imago Dei, if you could look at Summa Theologia 1, the first part, question 93, article 4, he says the image of God possesses an historical character since it passes three stages. Creation, which is our nature, recreated, which is grace, and similitudinis, gloria. That means what we've talked about is that eschatological dimension, beatitude, divinization. So the, stage, the first stage is creation, where we're the image of God because of our nature. You're in the image of God even if you're not baptized. Next, it's in recreated through grace, is the image. And then for him, similitudinous, similarity, and gloria, where we're destined. And so if you look at theology of the body, the theology of the body arranges um, this in the same way. The first part is about man before the fall, second is lust in the heart, third is the resurrection of the body. And again, we've seen this in the class on Beatitude. It is in the kingdom of heaven that the image of God, present and man here on earth, will be brought to fulfillment and perfection. This is all of us, as we participate in God's nature. And if y'all went to the, the talk from that theologian about the image of God, divinosis and theosis, we're going to participate through grace, through, and, and it's going to be fulfilled in heaven. And it comes from that beatific vision, where the image is brought into communion with the prototype. So God, John Paul II, God revealed man to himself in a deep and experiential way. The self-communication of God to the whole of creation and in particular to man. This is the most personal self-giving by God and his very divinity of man to that being from the beginning bears within himself the image and likes of God. So God will give himself in this new way, in this perfect way. We'll receive that gift. And as we talked about, we will become divinized. So it's in this telos where we're going, that perfectly heightens our dignity. 
sort of, you know, the way I would describe it, let's say that I have a work of art and it's, it's, a, it's a great work of art that I've done. It has dignity in itself, but if I'm delivering it to the president or the queen or to the pope because of where it's going, it's, it's a precious package. You know, we need to protect it because where we're destined to go, not just where we, where we came from, is part of that image. And of course, as we talked about already, when it comes to understanding that, and we're going to really see it in Theology of the Body, that we're not just talking about perfection in the kingdom of heaven as a soul, but as a full person. We will have our bodies rejoined to us, not just a bunch of souls walking around in heaven or floating around or on clouds. But that, of course, is the next life, and that's on the journey that we've talked about. That's where we're heading. So what we've got to discuss now as we sort of really launch into practicalities, and we're going to – this is where from this point on, whether it be in anthropology or whether it be in these essential elements of moral theology, where it gets practical, how is this Imago Dei lived out in the moral life? What are these different elements? Not just, because we talk about, we need to live love. We need to live and pray and be holy. But as we're going to see, yes, this is our fundamental option in the positive sense. Our fundamental option should be for Jesus. But as we saw in Veritatis Splendor, and as we are going to see more, individual acts matter. It's not just some sort of, here is the person, and you have these random acts that are all over the place. But, hey, they're all with, seen within the context of, I'm just a good person. No. Individual acts matter because they are seen on a continuum. As we choose to respond to grace and act morally and give of ourselves in love, in specific actions, or we decide not to, we become a certain type of person. And, and this is the big problem of Occam and nominalism as opposed to a more Catholic and intimistic perspective where you don't have ice, there's not the freedom of indifference where each isolated, each individual act is isolated or from a revisionist perspective where each individual act really doesn't matter because all that matters is your fundamental option or your intention or the circumstances and you weigh it in proportion, your individual acts form you to become who you are, a good person or a bad person, still ontologically good, a virtuous person or a vicious person. And at some point I'm going to present to you of all my questions ever posed people in class or moral theology, there's one question I pose that literally it sometimes started fights, not physical fights, but like I remember some deacon candidates getting very aggressive towards me over this. Not like not like charging the charging the desk or something, but boy, they thought they were right on this question. It's always interesting. It causes a a heated debate, possibly because people don't fully understand the question and maybe I don't explain it well enough, but we'll get to that. 
So what we're going to do, um, I'm not going to tell you now. Oh. Come on. Yes, it is. Because I'm keeping it. It's like a cliffhanger. What's going to happen to Baby Yoda in the next episode? We don't know. you got to tune in. We're not, well, who, who knows? So what we're going to do, though, is our next two lessons in, in sort of like looking at, we've looked at the human person, but the human person makes choices. His or her will is activated in specific choices. He or she is an acting person. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the dynamism of human action. What are the factors that go into the choice and trying to establish not only each individual choice, but within that narrative of our life and within the drama of human history. And then we're going to spend some time looking at another element of moral theology, which we alluded to, and is that's going to be of just sort of the psychology of moral actions and of culpability. We talked some about shame and woundedness, but how these things factor in to discussions. Um, and, and we're going to talk a lot more about that when we get into sexual shame, particularly in sexual ethics. But from a pastoral perspective, it's crucial and important. So let's say that you had, I'll give you an example to think about it. Let's say that you had your confession and uh, uh, a young woman comes to you and says, Blessed Father, for I have sinned. It's been three weeks of my last confession. Here are my sins. Uh, I got angry a few times. I told some lies. I cheated on a test. And uh, I committed lust. And you're going to say, all right. When you say that, what do you mean? I'll say in your mind or in your body. And she'll say in my body. In your body with uh, one, with yourself or with another person. Or with another person. How many different persons? Seven. Okay. How many times together? About ten. Now, from a casuist perspective, you will say, all right, well, there are ten different sexual acts. Do not ask her what she did. You don't need to get on those details. Just, you're going to say, well, okay, well, let's add it up. Here are, the, here are the penances. What should your next question be? Or what should be going through your mind in that situation? No, if you're you, a pastoral, legitimate, really human perspective, what, maybe not your next question, but what should you automatically default to? Yes, but there's a different question. What in the world is going on? Now, don't sorry like that, what's going on? <laughs> But, but you got to go, so you, you're pointing to the future. How can we stop you from doing this again? You're pointing to the present and what's going on. You know what's going on. What's the, what, where would we need to be focusing? What led, to what led to this? And what led to it? I'll tell you the first question. I'll say, are your parents together or divorced? Divorced. Or if this is together. Were you ever abused or victim of some sort of a trauma? 9.5 times out of 10, they will say yes. They may lie to you, but there's a big difference between someone saying, oh, the past few weeks I had sex twice and I've had sex with seven different partners. 
there's something deeply wrong there. And chances are that young woman has been sexually assaulted at some point of her life. She hates herself. Nine times out of ten. Well, well, we'll get into that. Yeah, you can ask that. I, I think you don't you be very careful when you do it and the way you phrase it. But yeah, there are some deeper problems. And to say, and, and say, listen, hey, why is that question important? Because this is a very broken girl. She's not choosing this out of malice. She's choosing a deep, deep brokenness. And that's why you say, hey, listen, there's help there. If you want to talk to me afterwards, you find my email address and you contact me because I can't contact you. I really encourage you to go to a therapist to bring this to light because we'll see that a lot of this action that you could condemn someone for easily, I can't believe you're doing this, is, is acting out of a much deeper wound and shame. So is she committing from, from a revisionist perspective Oh, she's not, she's, everything she's doing is not wrong because she's broken. No, what she's doing is wrong. And there are penalties for this in the sense that she's leaving damage in her own body and in the lives of others. But is she culpable fully for what she's doing? No. Chances are, and you have to evaluate it, it's not going to be mortal sin. It'll be objectively grave evil, which has results in the world, the pain of the, the damage that comes to the world. But this is a time for great, great mercy. And, and, and healing and redemption. And I can tell you numerous stories. Now, it's a delicate, you know, you're gonna be very careful in the way you do it. Or let's say that this is not in confession and you, you, you have someone who brings it up. The amount of people who have been traumatized by abuse, sexuality, who maybe th their dad was gone when they were young and they didn't get the love they needed and go looking for in other places, particularly in the realm of sexuality, uh, it cripples our will. shame will cripple our will and makes it very very difficult to choose the right way so but this is where our proper understanding of the, of the difference between malum that which is objectively morally evil culpa how culpable we are for it depending on our circumstances which could be circumstances from the past and our intention of why we're choosing it and whether or not that becomes a sin there's a fourth thing we'll look at which we call pena that even though you have committed this and you're not objectively, you're not subjectively uh, responsible for it fully because of your own brokenness or the way you're acting, boy, you're still doing damage to yourself and to others. And that's gonna have to be repaired. So we could talk about it. But, but this is all within that, what we're gonna call the perspective of the acting person to look at the act within a greater perspective. Not to say the act is right, but to say potentially the culpability is lessened. And that's where mercy comes in. Um, and, 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 a lot, and I'm not, not I'm saying that we're not determined by our past, but a lot of what has happened to us leads us, as we talked about, searching for God, searching for happiness, searching for meaning, but often searching for it in the wrong places. Uh, and, and again, as time goes on, it, it becomes more delicate. Um, but to be able to, and I can tell you, man, when they get the healing, if they go through counseling or the EMDR or, or, or group therapy or spiritual therapy, you will find that that behavior, which is acting out, you got to spot when someone's acting out. If someone, this person's weak, this person's malicious, this person's acting out of a much deeper wound. You're not going to treat all three people the same way. But that's sort of that overall dynamism of human action of why we choose what we do. How do you tell? 
Well, in relation to sexuality, there can be malice, but rarely. I mean, a guy can be malicious. I guess girls can be malicious too, but normally I'm an almost default to weakness when it comes to sexuality, almost always default to weakness. But you'll encounter predators, or you will mostly encounter victims of predators. And even though, yes, this predator may have been abused or hurt or whatever, there's still going to be repercussions for what he's done, and there ought to be. Uh, because, yeah, I'm not saying that even for the everything is, is expunged morally, but God can only determine that. Sometimes the, system, the court system has to determine it, but you can also somewhat make a, a fair decision. True. That's generally true. Yeah. And again, as we'll see, this person could be a sociopath. And I guess the, when we get into conscience, as we talked about, a person who's a genuine sociopath has no conscience. There's something we don't, I don't fully understand why, how brain chemistry works, but the, the, the part of the reason that it acts for conscience, the brain is not working. But does it mean, well, oh, I have no conscience, I'm not culpable. Well, I, you know, those are things we can discuss. But all of this is mercy, 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 mercy. Objective evil exists, and it causes a lot of harm in people's lives, and you were going to pick up the pieces or help to pick up the pieces in people's lives, but to come down hard on someone like that without picking it up, you will make it worse. You will make it worse. Sometimes you got to come down hard. All right, quit spending the night at your girlfriend's house. Cut it out. This is your penance. For the next three weeks, you are not going to spend the night at your girlfriend's house. Okay, Father. You can do that, but that's the difference. There's like there's weakness, but you should be strong enough not to sleep at your girlfriend's house. You know, that's that's not asking too, asking too much. Anyhow, that's for later. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.